Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. My guest today is Devati Bharadvaj. I met Devati online in the Nasty Women Get Shit Done Facebook group, and we finally got to meet in person last fall at Voices on the Margins, the event I coordinated, at which Olive Bukuru Kabuda spoke. She was the very first guest on my podcast a few weeks ago. Devati is an Indian immigrant who experienced a traumatic incident at age 13, but she rose above that to reclaim her Indian heritage. Now she's a naturopath here in Portland and is expecting her first child during COVID-19. Good morning, Devati. How are you doing this morning? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, ready to start the week ahead, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about how you're quarantining. How has COVID-19 affected you and your life? It's been a pretty eventful time. (laughs) I think uh, for me, being a healthcare provider and a primary care physician working in private practice, it was a big hit at first, just a sudden abrupt pivot from being able to go to the clinic every day and see patients in person to switching to telemedicine and not really knowing how to do that. And I'm horrible at IT. So for me, <laughs> it's <laughs> it was a lot of, uh, you know, technical glitches and I got to the point of wanting to throw my computer out the window one day, and <laughs> but you know we stuck it out and it was it was okay. Uh, but it was a lot for my patients to take on too, and I think the uncertainty of this virus and this pandemic, the lack of knowledge around it, we're still learning so much every day, right? And we're still relearning or changing what we learn. So I think that in general, what I see in my practice is it's brought out a lot of fear and anxiety and to a lot large degree depression in a lot of my patients. And so just sort of not just pivoting in terms of the telemedicine, but also pivoting in terms of how to provide care from a distance and how to be of a lot of the spiritual, emotional and mental support that people need all the while you know, processing all the information and digesting all the science every day and keeping up with the articles and information and research. I I don't know that I've given myself enough time to process all of it, <laughs> to be honest, taking it, you know, one day, one week at a time. Are you still doing telemedicine mostly? Yeah, or? I'm yeah. doing a hybrid of both. We, we've been reopening gently at the clinic the last, I guess, this past uh, few weeks. And um, so we've kind of redesigned new protocols switched a whole lot of things around in terms of our office space and furniture and <laughs> disinfecting procedures and things like this. So I'm, I'm seeing both. I, I still go in about most days of the week and I see some people in person and then the rest through telemedicine. As much as possible, we're still offering telemedicine just for everyone's safety. If they don't need to come in, we can still do a virtual consult. And I think that's, I think people actually prefer that. It's a lot less mm. running around yeah. So I, uh, but I have to say, I, I feel very fortunate because it, even though I, I feel the heartbreak around the world and the suffering all around us, I myself haven't personally been excessively affected by this pandemic to the extent that I'm fortunate. You know, my husband and I are healthy. Our families are healthy. We have a roof over our heads. We're, we're safe. <laughs> we can eat good quality foods and take care of ourselves and go for walks and things like this. And I know a lot of people can't. So, you know, I feel a little bit, it definitely has brought out the injustice and unfairness of things in the world because those who have 
continue to have and those who do not have suffer the most. And that seems to be historically true every time something happens and we're seeing it again now. And for me, the, the level of injustice and how this whole pandemic has played out is just crushing to my soul. It just highlights all the inequities that were already present and brings them more to the surface. And it makes me seriously think about how do we change that? <clears throat> and to that extent, I've, I've joined a few organizations that are working to talk about those kinds of questions and challenges. Um, I don't know that we have any simple answers, but it's going to require huge structural shifts um, in terms of culturally how we think about each other and then a lot of the social determinants of health and how do we bring access to not just medical care but quality food and clean water and clean air and reliable housing and all these other things to the people who are most vulnerable right now mm -hmm. yeah right, it's that's a, a long-winded answer <laughs> it's a big picture and then there's climate change and the way the climate change is right. affecting you know the most right. vulnerable in our world it's overwhelming yeah, yeah. How, do you think that you're approaching um, COVID-19 differently than a traditional doctor or like as a naturopath, mm. do you have different perspectives on it at all or? Um, you know, I'm not sure how uh, allopathic medical doctors are approaching it. I would say as the naturopathic physician, uh, the main difference is we're, we're looking at it from a more holistic perspective in terms of treating each person individually as a unique human being that they are and really digging deeper to the root causes of issues and their health issues. We probably take a more broader perspective in terms of understanding their environment and their community, you know, their life at home and yeah. what things are accessible to them and what's not. And and I think this idea that there's no real separation between mental, emotional, and physical health, right? It's all part of one big sphere of how we look at each human being. So um, in that sense, I think being an naturopathic physician has a more wholesome feel to it, which is what drew me to it in the first place. And and also, I mean, a lot of my approach with my patients, especially around pandemics and COVID-19 right now, has been to strengthen immunity and okay. support just all the vital, you know, optimizing their health so that, you know, we, we, can't, we can't know who's going to be infected or who's going to acquire the disease and who's going to fall sick and how they'll overcome it or not. But what we do know is that there are certain things um, like good nutrition and and hygiene and support for immunity that help people either prevent, you know, getting the, the disease even if they're exposed or if they do get hit. Hopefully they won't get hit as hard and they'll be able to recover more quickly. Let's look back to your childhood. Tell, sure. your, tell our listeners about where you grew up and uh, what your childhood was like and a sure. little bit more about your back your backstory. My childhood, childhood was pretty eventful. Well, so I was born in India in uh, the state of Gujarat and I have very few memories at that early age. But what I do remember are funny things like... Um, my great-grandmother used to sing these uh, traditional old, old Indian folk songs, all in Gujarati. And she was like an encyclopedia of, of knowledge of culture and songs and music. And she never wrote anything down. It was all passed by through oh. oral tradition. So she would just sing song after song after song. And my, my very first word that I learned wasn't mom or dad or anything like that. It was biju, which means um, another one, another one. Oh, so. <laughs> that's a wonderful story. I love that. <laughs> 
So she would sing a song and I would pretend to fall asleep. And then the minute the song would be over, I'd pop open my eyes wide open and say, Biju, sing me another one, sing me another one. Is that your first memory? That's one of my first memories. She had so much patience. She would just sing and sing and sing. And sadly, no one really recorded her songs. So we've tried to go back and find them and you can't really find them on the internet or anything like this. Um, So I'm not sure where those songs will be at this point. But that was one of my earliest memories. Yeah, I, I remember my aunt and uncles and cousins and I remember funny things like you know drinking warm cardamom milk uh, from from actual buffalo milk and it's, it was just delicious just strange things like this I, I remember there was a park that my cousins and I used to play in like a little p- playground and we would have races and running against each other and stuff as toddlers but you know the eventful part about my childhood was that when I was four years old my family immigrated to the United States and we lived in New Jersey and we lived in a pretty diverse small city and And that was actually really, in a way, it was a very exciting time for me. I I made a lot of friends of different cultures. I learned to say, you know, poopy words in different languages. And, you know, I I, I mean, I grew up with all the 80s stuff. Like I would watch Solid Gold on TV and I would dance along with that. And I would sing, you know, Michael Jackson and Madonna songs. I I was truly an American in a lot of ways at such a young age, um, even as an immigrant uh, and even for someone learning English for the first time, which is really hard. especially at four years old. Um, So that was kind of the earlier start to my childhood. And then what happened next? We, well, uh, we moved again to the Jersey Shore Mm -hmm. and I was 13 years old. And then that was kind of a darker side to my childhood. We moved to a town that was all white. And we were the only sort of um, non-white family, at least that I knew of anyway. That was the first time in my life I ever realized that I was somebody who was different and didn't belong. And I saw myself as this brown person, this alien. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of mockery and hatred. And I think a lot of that stems from ignorance and ignorance leads to fear. And then when you're fearful of something or someone, you don't like them and you want them to be gone. So I definitely got that message loud and clear by a lot of different small and big ways. I guess two of the biggest things that stand out in my memory are, you know, being bullied by other girls in school in the gym locker room being given uh, a razor to shave my legs, my leg hair, and just being thought of as being this disgusting person mm-hmm. because I wasn't white or blonde or, you know, pretty. And that really shaped me at age 13 when, you know, you're uh, at a stage in life that you're just starting to understand what it's like to be a woman. That transition from being a girl to a young woman and not knowing what's going on with your body and then to feel that you're, you're just ugly. <laughs> that was really hard. That was really really hard. It was a small thing, but it it landed in my heart in a big way. And the other thing that stands out to me is I was um, assaulted one day walking home from school by a group of boys who groped my body and said some really horrible things. And I just remember freezing in that moment, unable to breathe or fight back and not knowing what was going to come next. And again, feeling like not only did I not belong, but I, I was inferior and I was weak and somehow somehow I deserved that or somehow um, I guess I, I yeah I don't know how to finish that sentence <laughs> it was it was extremely scary but also it was like I had an out of body experience 
I was uh-huh. lifted away maybe as a form of self-protection and just waited it out. And then eventually all that ended. And that changed something internally for me in the uh-huh. sense that I no longer, I think it broke my innocence a little bit. And I, I no longer saw America as this, you know, multicultural melting pot of love and acceptance, you know, cultural celebration. It was more like, if you're not white, you don't get to be here and you don't get to live and you don't get to thrive. It was really heartbreaking for me to realize that. And, and it also taught me shame uh, for mm-hmm. the first time in my life. And I became ashamed of my own culture and my background, my people, mm-hmm. <laughs> including my own family. I, you know, I didn't want to be seen with them. I didn't even want to be seen myself. And I had learned around that time that there there was a, a terrorist group, uh, not too far from us, but far enough away that we were safe from it, I guess. Um, but it was a group of white terrorists who would attack Indian people, and they were called the Dot Busters, uh, because they would attack people wearing bindis on their foreheads. They would beat them off into a coma and sometimes to death. And there were, I think, 58 cases um, in the 80s and into the 90s. And almost none of the attackers were charged. There was no accountability. There was no punishment. And uh, it as it turned out, because, um, you know, even though people went to the police, they tried to report these hate crimes, but uh, were never taken seriously. They were never really believed. Nothing was ever done. So a group of them got together on their own and fought back. And I remember that so clearly at the time, because when I was, you know, 13, 14, I remember thinking, you know what, no one's going to believe me either. And I don't want to make anyone else worry or fight my own battles. I knew the teachers at school weren't on my side. There were no Mm. other students in school on my side. There was no one I could go to. So if I wanted to survive, I had to fight back. Mm -hmm. Um, just like these other people did. And I didn't know at first how that would be. And I hadn't really even thought about it. I just knew that survival mode kicked in for me. And then one day, uh, so, you know, at the time, or for a few years by that point, I'd been learning classical Indian dance. And it was really fun. I loved it. It was very challenging, but it was also really expressive. And so, you know, one day there was a talent show announced at my school, and I signed up to participate and and do Indian dance. And I have no idea what what went in my brain that day. (laughs) I I think I don't know if it was bravery or just uh, it was your it was like your it was like you're fighting back. I yeah. Know, right. Yeah. Like the dot best of the people fighting against the dot busters. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. It was sort of like my moment to say, no, this is who I am and I'm not firing yeah. down anymore. So yeah, it probably was my fight back. And, you know, and I, I performed on the stage. I, I got dressed up in a sari, you know, uh, tied up my hair and had jewelry on. And I put on my bindi right in the middle of my forehead. And I got on stage and I was so nervous. And I, the whole dance was a blur. I don't know what I did. I don't remember if I danced or what. <laughs> I just, I just danced and I could feel once I started moving and the music was on and the lights were on, I just felt like this is for me and this is oh. for my people and this is for my culture. And I actually, I, I started to feel proud again. 
okay. about being Indian, but also about being American, because this is part of what America is about. At least for me, it was. And I danced for both countries that I had so much wow. love for. And when it was over, I was still so nervous. I just ran off the stage. And then the um, one of the directors <coughs> came after me and said, "You've got to get back on that stage. You have a standing ovation." Oh. <laughs> I couldn't wow. believe it. And I, I was too timid to get back on that stage. But that whole experience changed something in me, and it changed something in almost everybody else around me. And I realized to belong in this country, you had to create your own sense of belonging. You had to prove your right to be here. And I guess for a 13-year-old or 14-year-old that it was at the time, that was my way of doing it. That was my mm -hmm. way of announcing my birth into, here I am, get used to it. This is how... Yes. The boys that attacked you, did they go to your school? Did you have to see yes. them? Oh, that must have been even harder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if they were in the audience. I just uh, would try to keep some distance. I never I never directly challenged them or uh -huh. confronted them about it. I never reported anything. I just kind of found my way to protect myself and hold my head up high and do what I needed to do. You had some sort of inner strength that was keep you going, obviously. Yes. And I have to credit my family for that because the love that I had from them and have for them, that's what gave me that strength. I felt so deeply cared for and embraced and cherished by my whole family that I knew deep down inside, I knew even if I never told them or even if they wouldn't be able to do anything about it, they were still there for me. I knew that without a doubt. <laughs> and that's what built that inner confidence, I think, and that sense of courage to even even put my name down on the list of performers <laughs> at a talent show. <laughs> Did you have siblings? Yes, I yeah. have a younger brother. And he, I, I don't actually know what his experience was like, but I think um, because he started much younger in that school district, and I think there were probably a couple other students of color in his cohort. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, he, he seemed to have an easier time with things. He had a group uh -huh. of friends and he was thriving in school. And, and so what about in high school? What was that like? Um, high school was a little better. better. I think mm -hmm. by that point I had, you know, I had made some friends and I had decided I, I had fallen in love with jazz and oh jazz I, yeah. yes <laughs> that was my thing and it was really weird because everybody else was listening to the pop you know 80s and 90s stuff and I wasn't really into it that much anymore I was more into stuff that was maybe a generation or two ago I remember back then you know you would go to the music store in the mall and buy audio cassettes I went to the store one day and I was in the you know Gershwin aisle and <laughs> and there were these there was this lovely older couple you know a senior couple and the, the man just looked at me and said, um, aren't you in the wrong generation to be in this aisle? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So who are your favorite jazz uh, musicians? Oh, I love John Coltrane. John Coltrane, in a way, saved my life because uh, um, at the time that all of this was going on, I also, it wasn't just dance, but it was also music that I threw myself into. And I listened to a variety of different things, but there was just something about the way he played saxophone that the emotion and the intensity and this sort of bitter sweetness about it. It's like he was, I don't know, crying out for something in his music. And I felt that same level of expression in myself that I couldn't articulate. But it was this wailing, this mourning, at, at the same time, this rebirth in his music that I could feel. And I, I, I could never articulate any of this at that age, but I just knew that that was the stuff that resonated with me. So I wanted to be like John Coltrane and I decided <laughs> I wanted to learn to play saxophone. So I, uh -huh. I went to the band director one day and I said 
I want you to teach me how to play saxophone. And he said, okay. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, uh, there's a store that you can buy used instruments from. So, you know, we don't have any extras here in stock, but if you want to get one, I will teach you. And I, I think he was maybe blowing me off or maybe, maybe <laughs> not sure that I was serious enough because, you know, here's this like punky little 14 year old, you know, <laughs> just marching up to this guy. He doesn't know anything about me and just demanding for less. So uh, we, I told my dad, I, I told my parents and my dad took me to the store and we bought a saxophone and I went back the next week and went right back to, uh, to him and said, okay, I have a saxophone, teach me. And he kind of looked shocked and puzzled and he <laughs> smiled and he said, okay, deal the deal. So wow. I, I, would get, <laughs> I would get private lessons. And by the end of the year, when I went into high school, I was actually good enough to play with the high school band. So I did marching band and I was one of those band geeks, which was awesome. And and I played a little bit in the jazz band, which I absolutely loved. And I think through music and art and dance is where I started to make my friends. I was also mm. part of um, some of these fun geeky things like the science quiz bowls, I think, or something. Oh, like really? They didn't, we didn't have they those were, in my high school. That must yeah. have been fun. <laughs> that was yeah. fun. So there was that and there was math. And we would go, you know, once every few weeks, we'd go into some competition with other schools. And so I basically was one of those nerdy kids who, who I found my tribe. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> of other misfits. And how did you decide to become a naturopath? So I, well, when I went to college, I was originally thinking, you know, I signed up to um, study biology and nutrition. And I originally wanted to go into research. Um, I had worked in a research lab. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to be one of those people who uh, understood biochemistry and, you know, wanted to find cures for diseases and things like this. And as I continued on that path, I realized that I, I love the science of it, but I love the humanities part too, sort of the social understanding of, you know, why is there famine or why is there inequity in access to clean food or clean water or healthcare distribution around the world. And that aspect, the social science aspect was really thrilling for me. And I realized that uh, after a few years of working in a lab that I, I just couldn't do that anymore. I wanted to be around people. And I remember also thinking at the time that there were a lot of things that were wrong with the way that medicine is practiced in this country and that we, we forsake a lot of our ancient traditions around the world of medicine. So I was mentioning this to a friend one day and she had a mutual friend who had just gotten accepted into naturopathic medical school here in Portland. So I spoke with her about it and she said, well, have you have you heard about naturopathic medicine? And I, and I hadn't. And she gave me a brochure to the college here and I took it home, read it cover to cover. And I just knew in that moment that that's what I was meant to do. On the other side of the country. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, I flew out to Portland to be interviewed from New York, which is where I went to upstate New York, which is where I went to college, mm -hmm. flew out to Portland to do an interview, loved the school. I loved Portland. It was one of those sunny February weekends and I, uh. I got to go to the gorge and it was, it was a little bit deceiving because I didn't know about the rain part. <laughs> you didn't know about the rain. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so all I saw were, you know, flowers blooming and right. springtime and it was Valentine's weekend and everybody seemed really happy. It was like a little utopia. So thus my decision was made. So that's how I ended up in, in naturopathic medicine. Yeah. And how did you meet your husband? Oh my gosh. <laughs> We, we met a very old-fashioned traditional way, which is called online. <laughs> we, we met on a, a matrimonial website for Indian people, uh -huh. um, which is actually 
global. And I had originally joined and then took my profile off after a couple months. It was just a little too scary for me. But then I, you know, a little while passed and I tried, I decided to try it again. So it was sort of at the end of our, at the end of my subscription. And he contacted me one day out of the blue. And now, mind you, he, he was living in Toronto at the time. And um, so when he contacted me, I thought, well, why is this guy, you know, <laughs> messaging me all the way from Toronto? But we started talking and we, we really hit it off. And then the next thing I know, we started talking every day. And as they say, you know, love kind of uh, falls out of the sky, it lands in your lap. And that's totally how it was for us. And we had a lot of details to figure out, like who was moving where to make this happen. There was a lot of flying back and forth and a lot of time spent on the phone and <laughs> and getting to know each other over time. But it kind of all came together in the end. And he was able to move here. It took some, some years, but we finally... Yeah, so you had a long distance relationship for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So a matrimonial website, is that... It's like... It's it's like an online dating, but with the intent to find a life partner. Is that how it's yeah. different? Oh, yeah. interesting. So you're not going to, maybe you don't find as many creeps. Oh, the creeps are on the there too. Are there really? <laughs> well, the, the website is called shabby.com, but uh-huh. a lot of my friends would call it shady.com. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> And I, I definitely got stalked. There was one fellow who contacted me and he found me on the internet somehow and he would stalk me at work. <laughs> so yeah, that's why I took my profile down. When I rejoined, I, I you know, had a different name and made it so that it'd be really hard for someone to find my true identity. And how long have you been married now? Since uh, November of 2016. So oh, right. three, and three and a half years. And you're expecting your first child. That's right. And when is the baby due? Baby is due uh, August 30th. So August we're 30th. on the last few weeks now. And how? what does it feel like to be pregnant during COVID? What is that experience like? You know, Marie, I have to say it's it's a mixed bag of emotions, you know, because we got pregnant. Well, we found out, I think, sometime in December. And then, you know, when we got close around the end of our first trimester is when we shared the great news with everyone. And it was a very exciting time. Uh, and that's right about when COVID hit here in the U.S. and people kind of panicked. And there were all these government mandates of stay-at-home measures. Suddenly, that became the big news. And I go through a lot of mixed, like I said, mixed emotions every day. I feel a deep sense of personal joy for this dream coming true, something I've always wanted in my life. And being a bit older, was told it probably wouldn't happen for me. So the fact that it's happened is really a miracle. It it makes me want to cry. (laughs) I feel so blessed and so lucky. And at the same time, you know, so I, I, there's a part of me that wants to run up to the top of a mountain and, and sing out loud, (laughs) kind of have my sound of music moment. But I, I also feel a little bit of guilt or a little bit of, um, you know, how can I be so happy when everybody Mm -hmm. else is suffering, you know, and, and it's just a time of a lot of confusion and uncertainty. I mean, all of the clinic and hospital protocols change week by week. Um, We just never know what to expect. I know people who have delivered recently who had to wear masks the whole time and weren't allowed to have any visitors. So they were alone. Sometimes I feel a little sad that, that I, I, I can't just get together with my friends 
friends and enjoy belly rubs. Um, It is lonely a little bit. And sometimes I also wonder, I think with all of not just the pandemic, but with all of the intense movement right now about towards racial justice that I'm very much a part of, but I have to do it a little more carefully. (laughs) You know, I can't just join every march and and block the bridges Mm -hmm. in Portland the way I would like to and the way I normally would. But I have been able to join some of the Black Lives Matter movements and march with some physical distancing and wearing masks on and being part of youth-led demonstrations, which is really exciting. And I've had to shift my activism more toward things like speaking to Beaverton City Council about police accountability or writing letters or (laughs) making phone calls and things like that, which is just as important, I think, as demonstrating. very important. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about growing up as a child of immigrants. You're, I mean, you're technically an immigrant yourself too, but also your yes. parents have this rich history. Your parents are incredible. I love them. I feel so glad I got to meet them. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yes. During that, oh, the, sa- the yes, welcoming week. During the same week. week. Yes, yes, yes. We exactly. went to a couple different events and we have been to run into you at the second one too. Yes. I'm, really, I'm really thrilled that they were here at that time because there were a lot of interesting things happening that week and they got to meet some of my um, friends who they I talked about but they hadn't gotten to meet in person before. Good. Yeah, so what was it like growing up in your family and what, did your parents speak English before you arrived here or? Yes, you know, they're both college educated uh, in India and uh, English is the medium for a lot of the colleges there. So they actually grew up speaking, I think, three or four different languages pretty fluently, including English. My dad is a mechanical engineer and my mom has a master's in economics, actually. Oh, right. When they when they came here as immigrants, and again, this is me telling the story from the perspective of a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I remember is that it was very hard for them too. You know, they had both left careers and solid educations in India mm-hmm. and had to sort of start all over again. So my dad, who was working his way up the ladder in India, started back up as a draftsman. And back at the time, they, they didn't have AutoCAD and computers and things. So they, everything was on these giant pages on huge desks and I, I think squares, or I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> yeah. that because I worked at an engineering firm. I remember oh, okay. those big drafting tables. and yep. yeah. So I still remember all that when I'd go visit him at the office. But he started off as a draftsman. He barely even got hired. It was it was another it was another immigrant who happened to be from Greece Ah. who hired him because he saw his talent and he knew this this guy's gonna do the work and and what made them come to the U.S. the first place I have no idea oh really (laughs) interesting you'll have to ask them that (laughs) well I mean I I think I think it was uh I I think at the time you know America was this land of golden opportunities right so everybody had this dream to come here and make this great life of themselves and we we had some family here already so I think that made it easy to come here and feel like there were some people around that we knew, but it was still hard. They were only allowed to bring, I think at the time it was $8 per person. Really? So when they came here, they had a, a couple suitcases and me and $24. That's amazing. Yep. Oh my and gosh. They're, and they're ruthless spirits, of course. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. What yeah. what strength and courage they had. Yeah. My mom, I do remember this. My mom, who is very well educated, very smart person came for, with a master's in economics and she had taken a little break from working uh, in order to raise me at the time but when she moved to the United States she couldn't find work at first so she worked at McDonald's and my mom who's a vegetarian oh my <laughs> gosh and the smell of meat wow. <laughs> was doing what she could do to make things happen for the family she 
had also encountered her own share of racism. I don't know much about it because I don't think my parents spoke much of it to me at the time, but I do know there was an incident where she was serving a customer and uh, the customer couldn't understand her accent and they got mad and they threw their food right in her face and she uh, had a face full of burger uh, for a woman who's gosh. a vegetarian. Yes, right. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. And my dad is not one to complain. He is a very mm-hmm. strong will person. So I, I do know he faced a lot at work too, but I don't think he ever really shared much with any of us. I think he kind of rolled his shoulders back and put his head up high and kept going. Was your mother able to find an economics job later on or? Oh, yeah. 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 She eventually uh-huh. was able to find some other work. And, and then she uh, she actually became a business owner and she owned a health food store for many oh, years. Oh, wow. And that, then you became a naturopath. That's yes. interesting. Yes. Well, wow. I, I should say part of the backstory on that is when I was growing up, you know, my mom is a really good cook and my dad <laughs> loves to garden. So he would grow all these great vegetables and a lot of them were Indian vegetables that we couldn't find anywhere else. And and then my mom would cook it all and we would eat it. And I would, I would help them with both the gardening and the cooking and eating. And, and I, and, you know, if my brother and I were sick, we didn't get Tylenol and we didn't go to the doctor for shots. We, um, we, we were given uh, some kind of nasty, stinky herb that was rubbed in ghee and, oh, and really? smeared all over our bellies. And wow. Just, the smell of it was awful. And we would just, I don't know if it was that we just were so disgusted. We were determined to get better or, (laughs) but I I think, I think the traditional herbal medicines worked every time. And I think that's a big part of what led me to follow suit and really having appreciation for those traditional roots of our. Uh Do you ever do that to your patients? Combine herb with ghee and rub it on their bellies. <laughs> I don't rub it on their bellies. I do. I although sometimes it's tempting. <laughs> yeah, right. So do you go back to India very often, or what does that um, feel like some. when you go back? It's like a second home. It yeah. is a second home. Uh-huh. Well, actually, it's my first home. I love it. I, you know, I think I think having a lot of family there is is an important piece of it because I miss them, and usually many years in between visits because to go back means you have to take at least two, three weeks off to really spend any quality time there. Um, And there's so many relatives and cousins and everybody else to visit and they're scattered all over. So it takes almost the entire time just journeying around to go to everyone's home. But I love it. It's it's very welcoming and everyone has such a warm spirit. And I feel like I do feel like that's where I truly belong when I go back in a way that I, I don't quite feel here even today. I think that's the biggest dilemma for people who are immigrants. It's hard to feel completely at home either place because you're you're kind of split right yeah do you think you'd ever want to go back and live in India for a while or I don't know if it would be realistic for me Uh anymore I feel like I've established my life here and I've grown up here so I'm just as Americanized as I am Indian in some ways I think I would love to I, I would love to go back more frequently and uh, definitely with our kiddo, I, w- I definitely want to make sure we keep our roots and visit back as much as we can. My husband's side of the family is all there. So, you know, at some point when things are safe enough to travel and the kiddo's old enough, I- I'm really looking forward to introducing the kid to all of our immediate relatives there. So what's one of your, what's one of your superpowers? I would say my superpower is my persistence. It's my deep sense of faith and hope and optimism that allows allows me to thrive in any situation. I think it helps me to face fears and overcome challenges. I still have, (laughs) I still get scared. 
I still feel nervous. I still worry. All those things, they're just part of being human. But I keep going. I don't let that stop me. And if anything, I almost think that those those um, those fear-based emotions push me to thrive even more. Do you feel like there was a big uh, sea change in the way that people view immigrants after the 2016 election? Or are people talking about it more? What are your thoughts about that? Have things changed for you in the US since the election? But, you know, the prevailing cultural attitudes recently or? Mm-hmm. I think this feeling about immigrants, I, I think a lot of things have become more polarized since the 2016 election in that the people who fear and loathe immigrants continue to do so at an even higher passion, it feels like. I don't remember feeling a little nervous like I do now when I go someplace in Portland by myself, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. especially if I'm dressed up wearing a sari or wearing a bindi. I never used to feel concerned about it, but in the last few years, I do. I just, I'm more aware of my surroundings and I'm paying attention you know, after the stabbings that happened on the MAX train a few years ago, I signed up for self-defense classes. And I feel like that's something that I never had thought about doing before. So there is, it feels like there's more active violence and more overt racism and anti-immigrant sentiment. On the flip side, it also feels like there's more people in support of immigrants and coming to our defense or protection. I've never seen so much, you know, I, I attended a few rallies in front of the ICE building. And I've been volunteering with a couple of groups to support people when they're going through their master hearings and, and you know, when they're in the process of possible deportation to kind of show up in solidarity for them. I've also done some volunteering with the USCIS in signing up newly minted citizens to register to vote. Um, oh, wonderful. So I do feel like there's more activity like that popping up mm-hmm. and that gives me a lot of hope and faith in yeah. humanity. Yes. And hopefully the, those types of people are, are, there are more of more of us out there than there are the haters, yes. you know? Absolutely. So the subtitle of my podcast is Grit, Resilience, and Connection. And thinking about becoming a new mom, mm. how will you teach your child to cultivate those values of grit, resilience, and connection, which you, you embody yourself? Mm-hmm. How will you teach your child how to be that kind of person? I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> Uh I don't know yet. Uh Um, I just imagine that both my husband and I, who's also an Indian immigrant, will show our child by role modeling. I think that child will see it in us, in our behaviors, in our attitudes, in our words, in our just way of being. I, I hope if nothing more that we show the child what it means to be a kind and embracing human being. I think if we can show how to love others, even those who hate us, how to have compassion and how to make some kind of connection, that is what fights against the ignorance. I don't know that that's something anyone can teach someone verbally. I wonder if it's something that they just see in action again and again and again, and that just becomes part of their spirit and part of their DNA. Mm-hmm. Right. And we were both lucky to be raised by parents who demonstrated that as well. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. I feel lucky that way too, that I was raised to not doubt myself. And I was raised to, you know, believe that I could do whatever I set, set out to do. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So think about if there's a story of grit, resilience, and connection that has been an inspiration to you in your life, either a real person or a particular book you like, what has inspired you um, 
in those values? Um, honestly, I would have to say my parents. That's probably the closest example I can think of that I know better than any other example. My parents are people who are just so full of love and joy and a deep sense of connection with others. So much kindness. They'll be the first ones to welcome people into our home and feed them and give them tea and talk with them and make them feel like they're part of the family. And they have done this regardless of anything that they've faced, whether it was hatred or ignorance or racism or discrimination. They remain positive and uplifting and inspiring, not just to myself, but to a lot of people around them. And that spirit that they have of uh, adventure and trying something new and risking it all and the, the courage that it took for them to come here and create this life because they thought it would be a better life for themselves and for their kids. And the fact that none of what they experienced ever made them bitter or resentful or dark. They kept that shine and that light within them. That's the spark that continues to inspire me every day to be who I am and to do what I do and not give up. So my parents always used to teach that we should always hang out with people who can teach us something. We should be with people who will show us how to be better human beings and to not let somebody else's lack or ignorance or whatever it is, whatever it is that's holding them back, not not to not to become like that. Yeah. I don't have a better word for it, sorry, oh. but that's about as good as I can explain that's it. That's really interesting. And did they teach you by their role model or did they actually say that to you? I think I think it was mostly the role modeling. Role modeling. Wow, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, they both strike me as being really outgoing as well. Yeah. So I love, I mean, they they embody connection, just the way their, their personalities, they're so mm -hmm. warm and engaging. Thank you so much for taking the time oh. to chat with me today. It was wonderful to get to know you better. I'm so excited about your future offspring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Marie. It's It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. I feel really honored to be interviewed and to be part of your very inspiring podcast. Thank and, you so um, much. And I, I really admire your work. I'm really glad to be a part of that. Thank you. I hope that and, after this is all over, we can spend more time together in person. Yeah, I would love that. I hope you enjoyed hearing Dave Ati's story. I think the story I will remember the most, outside of her poor vegetarian mom having a burger crammed in her face, is the story about her grandmother and the first word Dave Ati spoke, bijou, a leather one. We should all have a grandmother figure who sings us to sleep. Next week, we'll meet Rabbi Deborah Kaladli, a veteran of social justice movements and a bisexual rights activist who brings a spiritual perspective to their work. They currently serve as a spiritual leader of Portland's Unshul and executive director of Portland United Against Hate. They have been out on the streets many nights recently. They also launched the Portland Spirit-Led Justice Alliance to support, expand, and amplify the contribution of spiritual leaders and communities in justice campaigns. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. We help organizations and people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. Look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I look forward to our conversation next week.